0: great concerns about preaching as a thing. I not only am a preacher, but I listen to sermons constantly, not only uh, to learn how to, but also to learn how not to, because I listen to a great many different preachers. I don't know where the practice came from, where preachers just take one verse every week, I guess they just during the week kind of select a verse, and it can be from any book in the Bible, and it can have to do with any topic, and they just pick a verse, and then they read that verse, and then they quote-unquote preach, and usually the preaching demonstrates the cleverness of the preacher, or the creativity of the preacher, But at the end of so many of those sermons, I sit thinking, what did I learn about the Bible? What did I actually learn about the text that they chose? What have I learned about the verse that they've read? Even though they might choose a couple of words out of that particular verse and then extrapolate on the word, I've learned nothing about why that verse is important within the context of the biblical writers. Because the biblical writers did not write chapter and verse. They wrote letters. They wrote documents. They wrote histories. They wrote things that were meant to be read as whole units. And especially in the New Testament, and especially in Pauline writing, he is making arguments on purpose. And if you just let him say what he has to say, his arguments are truly, genuinely brilliant. I don't know in the history of mankind if there's ever been an argument better than the book of Romans. Every time I go back and read it, I am astounded at the logical progression of Pauline thought. And yet, I've heard so many preachers take a verse out of Romans and just read that verse and not read anything before or after or to explain how it fits in Pauline theology. And that is why for all these years here at GCA, we have done a verse by verse, chapter by chapter exposition through the Bible in the hope. That you will understand Pauline argumentation, and so that you will understand the gospel writers laying out their story, so that you will understand the Old Testament books and how they fit together, and where the prophets show up in the history of Israel, and so that you'll understand God's ongoing covenants and promises to Israel, and how that doesn't change when you get into the New Testament. I'm hoping that you're getting all that out of the Bible so that you have a really genuine biblical concept, a real biblical education about what's going on in the Bible. Now, this morning, we're going to finish chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, but I really don't believe that we can pick up at verse 50 without understanding everything Paul's been saying, building up to verse 50. Because he's talking about resurrection. And two weeks ago, we talked about resurrection as a thing, as a concept. And then last week, we talked about what kind of bodies people are resurrected in. And that they're resurrected in a different form than they're planted in the ground. Now, Paul is going to turn his attention to what he calls a mystery, mysterion in the Greek, a previously unrevealed truth, something that he's telling us that we wouldn't know if he hadn't told us. And he's about to tell us a mystery that not all people are going to die, that some people are going to be instantaneously changed. But if you don't hear the argument building up to that, you can't understand how truly cataclysmic that is. I have heard sermons saying that when Paul talks about people being changed in the twinkling of an eye, that that's allegorical of death. That what Paul's really talking about is that when people die, then they change at the twinkling of an eye. That's not Paul's argument. Paul has an argument, he's making his case, and he's laying it out very systematically. And so I, one more time, have to say I do not understand that mode of preaching or Bible teaching that just plucks verses out of context. Because what it ends up doing is teaching the congregation that the way the Bible is supposed to be handled is that you're supposed to only look at it in tiny little snippets. You're only supposed to pick a verse here or a verse there, and then you're supposed to apply it to yourself. When in fact, the way the Bible is meant to be understood is that you're supposed to read it and understand the audience that it was given to and understand what parts of it apply to the church and what parts apply to Israel and what parts are history and what parts are future to come and eschatological so that you can understand the big overview of the Bible because it's an endlessly fascinating book that becomes genuinely dumbed down when you think, oh, if I take a verse out of this Bible like a treasure box, and uh, whatever that verse says and whatever book it comes out of, it doesn't matter if it's Nehemiah, it doesn't matter if it's Paul, it doesn't matter if it's Genesis, whatever that verse says, it applies to me, and it applies to my circumstance right now. And if I have to twist it and mold it and spiritualize it in order to get it to apply to me, then that's what I'm willing to do. And I do understand why people do that. I don't understand why preachers do it. I understand why people do it because that's what they've been taught in church. They've been taught that this is how you treat the Bible. But it's not. These are wonderful narratives, wonderful stories, wonderful doctrine and theology wonderful eschatologies and wonderful history that has been handed down to us so that we can have a fully orbed Christianity and a fully orbed understanding of the God that we say we worship I know I'm ranting and raving a bit but I've listened to way too many sermons the last couple of months that do that and I get to the end of them and go why what was that that was a half hour that was 45 minutes but i'm no more biblically educated at the end of it than i was at the beginning of it so that being the case we're going to make paul's argument this morning i hope you understand that it's the pauline argument it's not jim's argument and we're going to start at chapter 15, verse 1, and we're going to read right up until verse 50 so that you can understand the Pauline argument. Because once he gets done talking about the reality of resurrection and the reality of the fact, don't miss this, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Once he establishes that, then when he says, I'll show you a mystery, it's astounding. It's astounding. It's cataclysmic. So let's start at chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, keep that phrase, by the way, tattoo that phrase to your mind. Last of all, because we're going to get back to that in about a half hour. So last of all and last of all as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached, that he has raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Then our preaching is vain, your faith is also vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ is raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished and if we have hope in Christ in this life only we are of all men most to be pitied but now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who are asleep so since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, then the last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise... What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead be not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives... I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. What does that profit me? If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body that will be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it the body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly, And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Isn't this a great argument? Do you hear how logical it is? How he is successively building point upon point. Yes, there is a resurrection. It's proven by the fact that Christ has resurrected. And as long as he's resurrected then the resurrection must be a fact. And if the resurrection is a fact, then we can have confidence that we also are going to resurrect. And then naturally someone will ask, what will we be like when we resurrect? Well, we're going to be different. The same way that you plant a seed and then it grows up to be a different kind of plant, According to what God has designated for every kind of seed, we ourselves are going to die and be planted in the ground. And then when we spring up again, we're going to have a new body, a changed body, because our old body is corrupting. Our old body is decaying. Our old body is weak and powerless. But the new body is going to be raised, perfected, incorruptible, powerful and so we're going to be the best version of us that God can conceive of that being the case he then says here's the order of things earthy man came first Adam came first then Christ came So the earthy is first and the spiritual is second. Same thing with us. We are born and then we are earthy creatures. But the same way that we are earthy in Christ, we are also promised to be heavenly. We're in Adam's race because Adam of the earth, we are his offspring But all those who are in Christ are not going to remain simply earthy, but also remain heavenly forever because he is from the heavens. He is not from the earth. And all those that are in him will share in his heavenliness the same way that all that were in Adam shared in his earthiness. Isn't this a good argument? (laughs) I enjoy this argument so much because let me tell you something about me. I'm real earthy. I'm just darned earthy. <laughs> and I know that every day that I get up and go, oh, oh, man, here I go again. And things pop and creak and vital organs don't work or something in my brain will pop. or I, I, I'm earthy. I'm doing what all earthy people do. Earthy people get old and they decay and they get sick and they die. And that's what earthy people do. And I am proving my earthiness by the fact that I'm going along that same route. I'm doing all the earthy stuff that earthy people do. Have you ever been praying? Have you ever been in the middle of a prayer? A prayer that you feel good about, where you feel real connected to God. And you're praying to him and some vile, earthy thing will get into your head and you start thinking, why? Why am I thinking that? I don't want to think that. Everybody's nodding. You're like a whole bunch of bobbleheads at this <laughs> moment. Because we've all had that experience. Do you know why we've all had that experience? Because we're all earthy. And our earthiness is demonstrated by our sinfulness and by our ego and by our pride and our arrogance and our our self-sufficiency and I don't need God and I'm not going to have this man rule over me and I'll do my own thing and I'm just fine, thank you. And That's the way earthy people talk. That's the way earthy people think and act. And our earthiness stays with us as long as we're on this planet. And as much as we would love to be godly, I get up some days and think, today, today I'm, I'm gonna be godly all day. Today I, I'm gonna say and think all the right and righteous things. Today I'm gonna be God. Maybe 10 minutes in, I blow it. <laughs> Again, too many bobbleheads. Because we're just earthy, and as badly as we want to be spiritual and as, as much as we want to be heavenly, right now we're earthy here's the really encouraging part of it paul argues that the same way that we are sharing in this earthiness we are going to share in our heavenly estate we're going to one day be heavenly because the heavenly man came to teach us about god came to show us the way to heaven came to guarantee our resurrection and our ascension into heaven to be with him forever On the back of that, Paul says, having really stressed the earthiness and the deadness and the corruptness and the incapability and the powerlessness of humans, on the back of that he says, oh wait, not everybody's going to die. Do you feel the transition? Because he's just argued that we're all die, we're all earthy, we're all, but some people aren't going to die. Verse 50, thus ends the uh, introduction. (laughs) Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood, that earthiness, that corruptible, those who have borne the image of the earthy, I have to say that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, inherit the imperishable. So this is why we change. Okay, so God's going to come back and raise us up out of our grave. What are we going to be like? Well, you're going to be different. You're going to be fundamentally different. You're going to be different to your core. You're going to be imperishable. You're going to be eternal. You're going to be perfected. Why? Because of this reality. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's an everlasting, spiritual, holy, and righteous kingdom. And you are not everlasting and spiritual and holy and righteous. So you can't be part of the kingdom. Something has to change. He has to change you. He has to make you imperishable. He has to make you everlasting and holy and righteous. I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable. Do you know what that means, perishable? When you're grocery shopping and you're putting things away in your cupboard, do you ever check the date on the stuff that's still up there and you find out that it's way past the expiration date? Especially when you buy things that are perishable. Buy a tomato and leave it on the counter for a couple of days. It will perish. It will corrupt. It'll it'll fall apart on you. And so Paul argues that we are just like that tomato. Okay, that's not the exact argument. Paul argues that we are perishable because we die. And the perishable, dying us, cannot inherit the imperishable, the everlasting, the righteous and holy spiritual kingdom of God. We can't inherit that in this current state. Something has to happen. If you went to heaven right now in your perishable state, once you got there, you'd still die because you're perishable. But heaven is everlasting. So the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. But behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's a euphemism for we shall not all die. But we shall all be changed. Okay, now he's argued about the change. We know what the change is and why the change has to happen. We know that this corruptible has to be made incorruptible. We know that this perishing body has to be made unperishing. But then we think about it, unperishing, is that a word? We think about it and we think that that that's going to happen at death. That once we die, then the transition's going to happen. Paul says, wait a minute, not everyone is going to have to die, but we are all going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall change. For this perishable, remember a moment ago he said the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable? Well, verse 53 says this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality then will come about the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory o oh, death where is your victory o oh, death where is your sting now in verse 56 he's going to answer that question but let's go back to verse 51 and 52 for a moment because this has caused A lot of confusion and plenty of commentaries and dissertations about the last trumpet and exactly when that happens and what that means because we're all anticipating the putting on the imperishable part. We're all anticipating the twinkling of an eye part and so we want to dig into this last trumpet. When does that happen? I'll show you a mystery. We will not all die. We will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. How quick is the twinkling of an eye? Just how it takes for your eyes to react to light. It just like that. Yeah. It, it just happened again. It just happened again. <laughs> they all and there there was and it happened again. Yeah, just now. Oh, there it was again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever uh, posed for a picture in the old days when people had Instamatic cameras with little flash cubes on them? And that flash would happen for just an instant. they push down the shutter and blam! And then you couldn't see for like five minutes. That quick flash is how quickly you're going to change from perishable to imperishable, from corruptible to incorruptible, from mortal to immortality, that quick, and I prefer this plan. I'm not going to go on about it, but I've seen the process of death, all I want to see. I got a call yesterday from Elder Spots in Chattanooga, letting me know that one of my friends, Elder Jackson, had a heart attack yesterday while driving and died. And then his car crashed behind it. No one was hurt outside of his death. And I said, you know, I feel bad about Elder Jackson's heart attack and his death. But there's a part of me that thinks, if you got to go, go like that. Because I've also seen my mother linger and linger for what is now years. And I have seen her struggling and in pain and i wish i could relieve it i keep saying over and over again i'm not afraid of death death itself is the transition from this life into the everlasting life it's an interruption between life and life so i'm not afraid of death i'm really afraid of the process of dying I saw Dwight nodding his head vigorously. Because those of us who have had some brushes with it, we understand that it can be very difficult and very ugly and very painful. And and I don't like the idea of the process of dying. Oh, but wait. Not everybody dies. Oh, I like this. This is really good news. Some people are going to step instantaneously as quick as a flashbulb, they are going to, like the glint off an eye, they are going to be changed to incorruptible and everlasting. Now, I want to know where the line is to get in line for that. Because I'm queuing right up. I'm ready to go for that. Unfortunately, we don't know who God has ordained to go through that experience. But he says, in the moment... In a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet will sound. Okay, so this tells us when it's going to happen. It's going to happen at the last trumpet. Now, this is where it gets controversial. Because there are plenty of commentators and preachers who say that Paul's reference to the last trumpet has to do with the series of trumpets That we find in Revelation 8 and 9, where after Jesus has taken the scroll from the hand of God and then opened the seven seals, at the last seal, the seventh seal, there is a succession of seven trumpets. And with each of those trumpets, there are events that happen on the earth as part of God's tribulation on earth, part of his judgment and wrath on earth. And so folks who believe that Paul is saying this instantaneous change will take place at the last trumpet connect that last trumpet to the series of trumpets in the book of Revelation and say well then Christ can't come back and he can't take his church until that last trumpet which places us a long ways into the tribulation period. Do you understand what I'm saying? The upcoming seven year tribulation You can't argue that the church is taken away before the tribulation or the wrath. You have to say that we're going to remain here for a great deal of God's wrath until the seventh trumpet is blown, and that's when we're going to be taken or changed. That's the argument. What's wrong with that argument?
1: It says we'll be taken before it. that
0: God will come and
1: take his church from the Lord. Well, close. We'll have to endure wrath again.
0: We'll have to endure wrath, that's a big problem, especially if Christ is a perfect substitute who took the wrath of God in our place. That's a big problem. What'd you say, Jen? Sorry, in Thessalonians, Paul says that uh... Well, let's go look at it. First Thessalonians four, sixteen and seventeen. You can even read it to us. I was gonna have somebody read that. Let's look at the parallel verse. First Thessalonians four, sixteen and seventeen. 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 17. You got it, Jennifer? I do. Read it nice and loud for everybody. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then
1: we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord.
0: Okay, so we put that together with what we just read out of 1 Corinthians 15. It's obvious that Paul is talking about the rapture, for lack of a better nickname, the catching away of the church, and that that's going to happen when people are raised from their graves, when they're instantaneously changed, and then all of us, the living and the dead, all in Christ, are going to be raised up to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord. But now we know that this is all connected to the rapture of the church, but still, what is wrong with connecting Paul's words with the book of Revelation and its seven trumpets? Theologically, what's wrong with that argument? When was Paul writing?
1: About 60
0: A.D. About 60 A.D. When was John writing? About, About 90, 92 A.D. So to say that Paul was referencing the trumpets of revelation, you have to assume that Paul somehow knew that 30 years after his death, John was going to have a revelation in which he was going to talk about a series of trumpets that designated particular elements of the wrath of God. And he doesn't say anything about it. Paul never mentioned it. Paul never brought it up. Paul never makes any reference to any writing of John. In fact, the writing of John didn't exist yet. And yet we're told that somehow Paul was referencing a book that wouldn't be written for another 30 years or so. Does that make any sense? No. No, It makes no sense at all to say that Paul was referencing a book that didn't exist when he was writing. So what is Paul talking about? What is this Trump thing Ah, ha, ha! The feast of trumpets, says Jennifer, who was here for our entire eschatology series. Okay, so feast of the Lord. There are seven feasts on the Jewish calendar. Three times a year, every Jew that could travel had to go to Jerusalem to keep the feasts. And Paul has been making repeated references in this book to the feast. In fact, in the next chapter, he's going to bring it up again. He's going to talk about how he's, he's going to come and see the Corinthians after Pentecost. He's going to bring up the feast. They are markers in time on the Jewish calendar. But then Paul tells us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He makes the connection between Passover and the death of Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus was put in the grave at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. During that week-long feast, there is a first fruits on the Sunday of that week. Jesus raised on the Sunday of that week. So Paul said repeatedly, he is the firstfruits of the resurrection. Fifty days later, penta, fifty. You count fifty days, seven weeks. And on the following Sunday is pentecost you've got penta right in the name so that's the moment that god has been promising forever that he's going to send the spirit not only to be with them but to be in them that all happens at pentecost now that takes care of fulfilling the first four feasts of the jewish calendar then summer comes then in the fall there are three more remaining feasts there's the feast of trumpets there's the feast of tabernacles And there's the Feast of Atonement, the Day of Atonement. Actually, I probably got those in the wrong order. There's the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. Okay, now Jesus perfectly fulfilled the first four feasts in his first incarnation, so it appears that Paul is combining the Feast of Trumpets with the return of Christ. Now, what that means... I don't know exactly, I'm not date setting, but I heard a preacher one time say, I can't tell you when Christ will be back, but I can tell you when he won't be, and then I think there's some certain legitimacy to that, because Paul, every time he talks about the return of Christ, what we heard Jennifer read, and what we're reading here, there's always this trumpet involved, but here's the key to it, notice that he referred to the last trump. Now, a few minutes ago, I said, hold on to Paul's phrase, last of all, because the way Paul uses the word last is last in a series. He was seen, he was seen, he was seen by Cephas, he was seen by over 50, he was seen, he was seen, then he was seen last by me. Well, wait a minute, John saw him later, so we don't mean absolute last, We mean last in a series of occurrences. Okay, at the Feast of Trumpets, that is a feast of blowing trumpets. Let's look at it real quick. Uh, Tom, look up Leviticus 23, 24. You're sitting right here. Want to read six verses? Sure you do. Numbers 29, the first, well, you could really read the first verse by itself, and that would satisfy us. But if you feel up to it, you can read all six Tom's got Leviticus 23, 24. The only reason we're going to read these is that I want you to see that the feast of trumpets was a feast of blowing. That's the word, the Hebrew word for that particular feast, blowing trumpets. Not only were they to blow the ram's horn trumpet, but the priests were to blow the silver trumpets in the temple and all of that was supposed to occur. So this is the feast of trumpets during which there is a sequence of trumpets and there is a last trump. And so Paul, the way he keeps combining feasts of the Lord with the lifetime of Jesus and Jesus fulfilling those feasts so that all those feasts foreshadow and point toward the coming of the Lord, there is also an argument that can be made that Paul is simply continuing to do that when he mentions the last trump tom's going to read out of leviticus for us leviticus twenty-three, twenty-four.
1: and the lord spoke to moses saying speak to the people of israel saying in the seventh month on the first day of the month you shall observe a day of solemn rest a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets a holy convocation
0: now trumpets can signal a whole lot of things especially when you're talking about a large convocation of people or an army of people out on the battlefield, you couldn't speak to them and tell them what to do, so you would have a series of trumpet blasts. We still have that to this day. If you ever go to a sporting event and suddenly over the PA system you hear da 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 Charge. Charge. You You say that instantly. You know what that means. When you hear taps, you know it's the end of da, da 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 da. You know that the the trumpet is saying something. It's signaling something, and so armies had a series of trumpet blasts that could mean anything from prepare for war or good night or gather. And so the children of Israel had these trumpets, these ram's horns, that they would blow in order to know when it was was an assembly. And so the first day of the seventh month, at the beginning of the new moon, that was the day of the Feast of Trumpets. And there was a series of trumpets that were blown, signaling both the new moon and the Feast of Trumpets itself. Here we're going to let Thaddeus read Numbers 29 Verse one, I think, is all I'm really looking for, but you can read all the way to six if you feel particularly good about it. But you have to stand up and turn around and read loudly so they can all hear. I know, Tom didn't have to do it, but you have to. I know.
1: On the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a day for you to blow the trumpets.
0: Really, you gave up after one verse? (laughs) The first day of the seventh month, a holy convocation, everybody's going to gather at Jerusalem, and there's going to be a blowing of trumpets. And so I'm prone to believe that if Paul is referencing anything, that he's referencing a trumpet that is going to call a holy convocation, which is exactly what the Feast of Trumpets is all about the blowing of trumpets to bring about a gathering, a convocation of people. Because every time that Paul speaks about Christ returning to gather his church, there's always that trumpet involved. And the trumpet is being blown to gather the people of God together. And I don't think it's too far a stretch to say that Christ is going to return and satisfy the fall feasts the same way that he satisfied the spring feasts. And if that's the case, I'll just throw this out there. You can do with it what you want. But if that's the case, then right after Feast of Trumpets, which is the calling together of the church, the next thing that happens is atonement, which is atoning for sin, which would be the tribulation period. And then the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Temporary Dwellings, Feast of Tabernacles it's sometimes called. Well, when you look at the book of Zechariah, the only feast that's going to be kept during the millennium by all of the Gentile nations, they're going to be required to come to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the only one. So if the Feast of Tabernacles designates the millennial period, and if the Feast of Atonement designates the period of God pouring out his wrath, then the convocation of the church happens before that. I'm just going to throw that out there. Some may argue and say, well, I'm not pre-trib, I'm not premillennial," but that's the argument in favor of it. What we do know is that every time that Paul argues for the gathering of the church, it is always at the last trump. He can't be referring to John's series of trumpets, but he is clearly referring to the series of trumpets that he's familiar with the same way that he's familiar with the other feasts and finds Christ's fulfillment in those feasts. Got it? Got it. Any questions about that? Yes, ma'am. Um. When you say trumpet, is that an actual trumpet or or what? Or is that just to
1: bring the people together or what does it
0: mean? Yeah, in the Old Testament, it was a bored-out ram's horn. And so you would blow through it the same way you would blow through a trumpet. It was called a shofar. And with a shofar, you can not only make a couple of different notes, but then you can make different sequences, different rhythms that would express, you know, gather, get ready for war, good night, all those things. So we're talking about ram's horns. We're talking about shofars here with the trumpets. But then there were also silver trumpets, not like Louis Armstrong. We're not talking valves and we're not talking any of that kind of jazzy stuff. We're talking about a, a straight trumpet. Remember those old plastic trumpets that you could get and make the noise through? We're talking about those kind of trumpets where if you have an amateur and you can make your lips make that noise, it'll be amplified by the trumpet.
1: Or like if a king walked into a courtroom or anything and his guards had
0: the... They'd blow the trumpet. They'd lift those straight trumpets and they would blow the notes. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I
1: think what she was asking is, will there really be
0: a sound? Is that what you Yeah, is there going be a shout and a sound? I mean, how... Would that... That's not what you asked.
1: Well,
0: I know, but... No, you're altering your question now. <laughs> <But it's,
1: clears throat> from what Jennifer was reading, is there going to be a shout and is there going to be a trumpet? How we
0: yes. I mean, yeah, I think so.
1: I mean, loud enough for everybody to
0: hear. Loud enough for us to hear. Okay, this is really important. Good for you for saying that. Good for you. Now, Now you get a compliment. A minute ago, <laughs> not so much. But there are folks who say, well, the rapture can't be a private event just the church because it's so noisy. There's trumpet and there's a shout and there's so then the world would hear that. The world would be aware of it. I have always argued God knows how to make particular people aware of his presence and his voice and not everybody has to hear it. Remember when Paul was traveling on the road to Damascus that he was knocked down and he heard a voice. Mm-hmm. Remember um, Jesus baptism. remember at Jesus' baptism, there were people who heard the voice of God say, this is my beloved son. Some people thought it thundered. Mm-hmm. Okay, so God has the ability to make sure that only those people he wants to hear him, hear him. The same way that he has the ability to make people believe, he has the ability to make people hear him. How did the prophets hear the voice of God? How did they hear him, understand his direction, and be able to write it down? Everybody in the room didn't hear it. Why did Jeremiah have to tell Baruch, this is what God said, now write it down? Because Baruch didn't hear it. But Jeremiah did. So I argue that the rapture does not have to be a worldwide sonic event. It's going to be very specific and very noisy for us because we're going to hear it it's not going to be something that we're going to be vague about it's not something that we go was that it was that are, are we going now? what what just happened i don't it, No, we're going to hear the trumpet that says come up hither we're going to hear the voice of the archangel we're, we're going to know it's time to go
1: maybe Trump and Pence have something to do with
0: this. I was so afraid that somebody would bring up. I can preach my heart out. I can show scripture from the arguments and the politics. I knew Trump and Pence were coming up. I knew it. It's not the feast of Trump Pence. It's the Feast of Trumpets. We're nearly done. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. Two more verses. Zephaniah. Somebody find the book of Zephaniah. Because this trumpet also, it doesn't just signal the gathering of the church. But it signals the coming of the day of the Lord. And since it signals the coming of the day of the Lord, the trumpets must occur at the beginning of the day of the Lord. Somebody look up Zephaniah 1 14 to 16. Somebody else look up Joel 2 1. And you're going to again see this reference to trumpets in connection with the day of the Lord. Who's got Joel 2 1? Hey, Steve's got it. Read nice and loud.
1: Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near.
0: So blow the trumpet in Zion, because the day of the Lord is coming. So the trumpet is also connected with the day of the Lord. It's not only said in Joel, it's also said in Zephaniah. How many folks have found Zephaniah? Well, uh, well, I was going to go over here. I know. Zephaniah 29, no, Zephaniah 1, 14 to 16. Stand up and read back to them.
1: The great day of the Lord is near, it is near, and hates greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. So,
0: as we put all these pieces together, what have we got? We've got Paul's reference to a trumpet when Christ returns. When Christ comes to get his church, when the instantaneous change happens, when the rapture of the church happens, when all those in Christ dead and living are raised up into the air to meet with him, we have a trumpet call at that point. But then we have these Old Testament prophecies that there's also going to be a trumpet call at the beginning of the day of the Lord, which if we believe that the church has taken off the planet before the day of the Lord, then that's consistent because there would be the trumpet call, prepare for the day of the Lord, that would be the trumpet call to bring the church forward. It's another of the arguments in favor of pre-tribulational rapture. But do you see all the references to trumpet? I only say this to say, Paul is aware of all those historic arguments But he is not aware of John's revelation. And so all of the commentaries that connect Paul's comment about the last trump to John's trumpets cannot be. That's inaccurate. But he is very aware of all the historic references to trumpets, both in the Feast of Trumpets and the Gathering of Israel, the Trumpets for the Day of the Lord, the prophetic trumpets. He's familiar with all that. So I argue that he must be saying something in league with what has already been revealed rather than something that would not be revealed till after his death. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Let's wrap it up. For this perishable, verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now he's going to answer that question. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. Now this is perfectly in keeping with everything else Paul has written about sin. He argues that the reason people die is because people are sinful. The wages of sin is death. He's consistent in saying it is because we are sinful that we are decaying. You will notice that back in the Garden of Eden, in talking to Adam and Eve, there was no fear of death. There was no fear of aging or getting sick. There was the warning from God, if you eat that, then you'll die. But before that, there there was no telling how long Adam would have survived had he not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But once he did that, People began dying and dying and dying. So the sting of death is sin. How do we know when we're sinning? How do we know that we are sinful? Because God has already placed a righteous standard. He says the power of sin is the law. And if you are under the law, if you are only under the law, if you are solely under the law, the law can do nothing but condemn you. That's all it can do. All the law can do is say, you're wrong. And you're wrong again, and you're wrong continuously. So that is why it's so important to Pauline theology that when Christ came, He satisfied the law, he nailed it to his cross, and he took it out of the way. And Paul uses his most vociferous language, his most angry language for anybody that would tell Gentile believers who have come to Christ that they have to go back to the law. He says that anybody who would say such as that is to be anathema. He says it twice in a row just so you don't miss it that anybody that would take Christian believers back to the law is to be anathema. So Paul's argument is, consistently the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So what are you going to do? Remember, uh, like Romans 6. Is it 6? 7. 7. Paul goes through the, the litany of his own problems. And he argues that the law is good, the law is right, the law is fine, there's nothing wrong with the law, the problem is him, he can't do it. And so all it can do is condemn him, all it can do is stand against him in judgment. And so he finally cries out, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay, so this body is dying because of sin. That is the sting of death. That's the power of the law. The the law proves our sinfulness. And our sinfulness leads to death. And that's the sting and the power of the law and sin. And Paul argues that he has no idea how he can possibly deliver himself from this ongoing deadly state of human life. What is the answer back in Romans 7? I thank my God. He's delivered me. I couldn't do it. He gave me a law. He gave me a standard. Well, He gave Israel the law, gave them the standard. And they couldn't do it. And all it could do was condemn them. So, what hope does anybody have? What hope does anybody have sitting here being a decaying, perishing, sinful person? What hope do you have of making it all the way to God? Only on Jesus. Only on Jesus. You can't possibly get there any other way. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Through him, you're able to get to the Father. So the same way that Paul argued that in Romans 7, look at the consistency. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Verse 57, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory, the victory over death. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He does for us what we can't do. He establishes us when we can't establish ourselves. We can't perform good enough to be worthy of his presence. But he decided to send his son and through his son's vicarious, substitutionary, atoning work, he then makes us as righteous as Christ is, so that we then get to be in his presence and on top of that, as if that weren't good enough, makes us imperishable and powerful and everlasting and able to stand in his presence forever. And it's all him, him, him. He does it. He does it. He does all of it. He proved that nobody was good enough that nobody was righteousness that nobody could follow the law he proved that it can't be done then he did what human beings simply cannot do i give thanks to god who gave us the victory through our lord jesus christ therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast now that you know all that the whole argument this entire chapter All of chapter 15, all about the resurrection, all about Christ's return, all about the trumpet, all about our heavenly estate, all about our eternity, our incorruptibility, twinkling of an eye, all of that is summed up in therefore, knowing all that, stand fast, know what you believe, know why you believe it, know who you trust and why you trust him. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. So here we are, waiting for him to return, waiting for him to come back and get us. Those of us who are alive and remain instantaneously changed. That's the noise I'll make. There will be a flash. I'll be perfect. Now, woo-hoo! I'll have hair. It's going to be a good day all the way around. So here we are. We're waiting for that moment. Paul says, don't just rest while you're waiting. Don't just wait nonchalantly for Christ to come back. Be steadfast in this thing. Be immovable because the world wants to move you. Have you ever stood on a mark and had somebody come up and push your shoulder to check your balance? They used to do that with me a lot when I was reestablishing my balance. My uh, physical therapist, she'd say, stand on this pad. And it was a a bouncy pad thing. And then she'd come up to my right side and push me and come up to my left side and push me and get behind me and push me. And she was a mean woman. (laughs) She She was cruel and heartless. But she pushed me because she wanted me to move. And that's what the world wants. They want you to move off that mark. Take a step to the left and then take another step off. Next thing you know, you're off the pad. I'll quit pushing you if you'll just admit that you don't really believe. Paul says, believe it. Stand on it. Stand steadfast on it. Be immovable on it. And during this time that you're occupying the planet until he comes be zealous for these good works that you're doing in the Lord, knowing full well why you believe and what you believe and who you believe in and that the world for all the pushing and all the arguing and all the yelling and all the placards and all the down with Christianity. Did you see this week, by the way, that there was a senator who argued that we have to do away with Christianity in America if there's ever going to be true freedom for the homosexual and the transsexual and the gay rights people that we have to do away with christianity don't ever think that we as the church can just rest on our lease we have to be steadfast we have to be immovable and i hope that paul's argument this morning is enough to give you hope and enough to get you forward thinking looking for the return of christ because he's going to return to those who anxiously anticipate his return. So I hope you have that genuine desire for his return. And as long as you have that, you're going to be immovable. You're going to be unchanging. And that's what Paul wants from you. You got it? Got it. Got it. Are you happy you're a Christian today? Yes. Because there's a whole bunch of people out there who don't know any of this stuff.
1: Pretty
0: unhappy they would be pretty unhappy. They, are pretty unhappy they are pretty unhappy I thought you were announcing that you are unhappy no, no, no. and I was going to say that's sad we have to burn you at the stake now and so no it is listen Paul said it earlier that if you only have hope in this life we are of all men most miserable you're right there's nothing but unhappiness if you have no hope for a future. All you get is this world. Eat, drink, and be merry, because this is it. And tomorrow we die, and that's it. Well, look at all and the
1: protesters out there, they're miserable.
0: Unhappiness runs rampant. You know, it's funny again that you bring that up because Paul talks so often about how Christians should behave, and one of the things he says is, "Don't riot. Mm-hmm. Don't be involved in rioting." And I know like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, to me that seemed like an inconsequential kind of command because there wasn't a whole lot of rioting necessarily going on. Look what's happening now. The unbelieving world is demonstrating its sinfulness in the way that it is rioting and destroying other people's property. For freedom of speech. For freedom of speech. The world is going nuts. The world is going crazy. Christians know That we have a far better hope and that this world is passing and that one day we're going to be in eternity changed and eternal with Him, incorruptible, overjoyful. God will wipe away every tear. That sounds like a good plan. It sounds a whole lot better than trusting that me and my friends are gonna go bust up a window and somehow someone's gonna hear my argument because of that. (laughs) Silly people. All right, I gotta let you go. It's gotten late. All right. I just want you to know. Aren't you a little worried about your death? I'm going I l- to tell you what Jesus said. I'm the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may, though he
1: may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this?
0: Isn't that great? Yeah. So why are you worried about your death? I'm not worried about my death. I'm not going to die. I'm not worried about my death. I'm worried about the process of dying. It's, I'm worried about
1: Jesus just said, "If you live and believe in me, you're not. You'll never die."
0: But He didn't say you won't get old, sick, and corrupted. Well, you can do that, but you won't
1: die. <laughs> uh, Good night, everybody.
0: That was perfectly timed. I just took a sip of water
1: almost
0: and almost drowned. Oh.
1: Right there. And they'd have blamed that on me.
0: And they'd have blamed you. That would be all over the Internet. Miss Gladys killed Jim. <laughs>
1: Damn.
0: Speaking of whom, say goodbye to the Internet people. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.